this morning by talking about a vision for prayer. Our mission statement is very simple. It's three phrases. Make disciples, baptize believers, teach God's word. That's a summation of Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, which is the Great Commission. The Great Commission is repeated in the Gospels, but then it's also repeated in Acts chapter 1. And if you have your Bibles, I'd ask you to look with me at this restatement of the Great Commission. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But you shall receive power. Boy, that's what we need. Power from on high. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me. That power has a purpose to become a witness for Jesus. And you will be witnesses for me, he says, in Jerusalem. Right there where they are. And then in all Judea. And then Samaria and to the end of the earth. And so that's the Great Commission in a nutshell. He's basically saying... Right where you are, in your home, in your neighborhood, at your workplace, you're a witness for Jesus. He gives you the power to be a witness for him. And then that spreads out into the corners and all the ends of the world. And so we will begin there because this power comes, as we'll see, when people pray. It was the summer of 1974 in Orlando, Florida, when Walt Disney World opened its doors to the public. Uh, Disneyland in Anaheim, California had been open for about 20 years, and Walt Disney at the time was 47 years old. He was a very successful film producer and director and animator. He was an entrepreneur, and then he began working on a bigger vision, something about a magic kingdom. He wanted something that families with their children could come enjoy, and it would just be special to walk into. He had this dream of a magical park where families would come, and they would have wholesome fun together. World War II had stopped the building of the park years before, but not the dream in Mr. Disney's mind. The six-year delay, okay, you got to think about this. He has this dream and this vision. War comes across the world. Uh, he's even using his animation to help wartime efforts and to encourage soldiers. And there's a break, a hiatus between the dream and the completion of the dream. And the six-year delay didn't stop Mr. Disney from doing what we have today. It only expanded his dream. You see, originally, Mr. Disney had an eight-acre park in mind for Walt Disney World. He was going to make it spectacular, the best eight acres in the world. But over the course of the world, it expanded to 165 acres and more. Have any of you guys been to Walt Disney World? Would you raise your hand up if you have? I've not, all right? Good time, okay? I know I've been to Disneyland, but... Disney World is a special place, uh, especially if you, like, uh, if you like people, okay? I know you, you're going to have a lot of people <laughs> around you all the time. Um, today, Walt Disney World grosses over $2 billion. I guess that's annually. It wouldn't surprise me if it were. But what happened is after Mr. Disney passed away, his wife was sitting with Walter Cronkite at the opening of Walt Disney World. And Mr. Cronkite wanted to say just the right thing to Mrs. Disney. And so he leaned over to her and said, wouldn't it be great if Walt were here to see this today? And she wasn't being uh, smart when she said this, but she said, if Walt had not first seen this, you would not be seeing it today, Mr. Cronkite. And that's true. He had a vision. He had a plan. He had a dream. And there was nothing that was going to stop that. And guys, that's so important. I'm not a motivational speaker. I'm not good at that stuff. But I can tell you this. If we don't have a vision and a plan for where we want to be in our individual lives as believers and as a church, then we're not going to see it, especially when Satan comes in and drops those plans and we have a hiatus and a stop in the work and the production. And so we understand the world is great about having a vision for these temporal things, like these temporary things. But a lot of times God's church struggles 
with just a tiny glimpse to see how we can build God's kingdom on earth. Not the magical kingdom. That's a great place. It's fun. It's fantastic. It's great to go for vacation. All those things are great. But we have God's kingdom on earth. How are we building it? What is the dream that we have to see God's kingdom uh, further and advance? How do we want to see people come into God's kingdom? Because we all have people that we know, that we love and care about, that aren't a part of God's kingdom. They're God's creation. He made them in his image, but they aren't his children. And when you're children, you're entered not only into the kingdom, but one day we'll sit down at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And guys, I pray that everybody in here knows Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior. If you don't, this is the invitation. This is the invitation to come to Christ, to commit your life to him, to surrender and submit with all humility and cry out, Lord, I've fallen, I've fallen far short of your glory. I'm a sinner and I need salvation. We all must do that before we may become a Christian. There's a verse that's often preached on the first Sunday of every year from Proverbs 29, 18. And you guys know this verse well. Where there is no prophetic vision, the King James says, where there is no revelation, the people cast off restraint. But blessed, that word just means happy, is he who keeps the law. Where there's no vision, where there's no goal, where there's no target, where there's no road ahead, people basically fall by the wayside. We lose sight of where we're going. We lose sight of what we're supposed to do. We kind of get into a rut, if you will. My old pastor, Sid Ree, used to say, a rut is just a grave with both ends knocked out. Sometimes we get in those ruts in life. I don't want to be there. We don't want to stay there. We want to keep moving, get back on the high ground. And so I've been praying for quite a while about what to preach this morning, and uh, Steve can attest because there's no slides, there's scripture verses up here this morning. Um, I have completely radically altered this message because I thought I had what I needed to preach to you guys today, but it's changed. And so I'll, I'll share these three things about a vision and this idea of vision and sharing it with you today. Number one concerns me and your pastoral and ministerial staff. Number two will concern you, and number three will concern all of us, okay? Number one, uh, Pastor Steve Larson once preached this. He says, the preacher has nothing to say apart from the Word of God. Amen to that. We get in trouble because we're human beings, just like everyone else, when we open our mouths and say things that aren't from the Word of God. We all have feelings, we all have emotions, we all have these things that are going on in our lives, but a preacher of all things shouldn't be the best joke teller or the best storyteller. He should be the best word of God teller that he could possibly be. And so we know this, that if I stand up here, guys, and I don't open my Bible and I don't tell you scripture and you don't hear a scripture come out of my mouth during a sermon, you need to fire me, okay? And that's the reality of it. Whomever comes to present to you a sermon, it must be a Bible-based sermon. And we have to preach the Word of God. Not only do we have to preach it, but you have to study it. You have to know it. You have to learn it. It's not enough to come. It's 1030 when I take the pulpit, and I have about 30 minutes to preach the Word of God. That 30 minutes isn't going to fill you up throughout the week. Even if you come back tonight and you get 45 minutes more, maybe, of a word from God. Even if you come on Wednesday night to a class or Sunday school, you think about it. If you come 45 minutes for Sunday school, you come an hour for service, you come an hour for Sunday night, and you come an hour for Wednesday night. How much is that? Less than four hours, isn't it? Is that supposed to sustain you? We eat three meals a day. Some of us go to Taco Bell for a fourth meal, right? 
We have to have sustenance to continue to have energy to do the things that we do. And guys, if we don't have the spiritual sustenance, you don't just get it here, right? We don't eat every meal in our home out. We cook a lot at our house. God's house has prepared a meal for you, but it's not the only source of nutrition and supplement that you need. You need that in your own home. You need to be packing a lunch with you, taking your Bible to work with you, taking it to school with you, being prepared. And so Pastor Larson said the preacher has nothing to say apart from the Word of God. In other words, if I, as the pastor of this church, don't have a God-breathed vision to share with you, if I'm not leading you and guiding you, and it's a hard thing to do, it means what I haven't done is spent adequate time with the Lord. If I'm not on my face and on my knees and seeking God's help and asking him, God, where do you want to take this church? Because this is way, way bigger than me, and it's way bigger than all of us together. This is God's church. We say all the time, oh, that's my church. I go to First Baptist Lowell. Or this church and that church is their church. Or that's Pastor whoever's church. No, they're all God's churches. We need God so badly that if we're not spending time with him, none of us know where to go. We don't know his will. We don't know what he's calling us to. And so that's where it begins. Your leadership. And maybe you're the leader of a Sunday school class. Maybe you're the leader of a ministry. You know, I know that there are ladies and and gentlemen over this morning that are in the nursery and teaching children's church to two different subsets of our kids. If those people haven't prepared, man, I don't want my child in a class where nobody's prepared the word of God. And all they do is they play with cars the whole time. Even if he's three years old, I want him to hear the word of God. I want to hear scripture and verses over him. I want to hear him singing spiritual songs. And we have to prepare for those things, no matter how big or small your role is. The second thing is, a people who are unwilling to follow God's vision are a threat to the church. Do you know that? You're not only a threat to church growth, but you're a threat to church health. If you're the Lone Ranger, if you're Rambo, I was pulling through uh, DVDs the other day, cleaning stuff out, and I have the Rambo series on DVD. And Sperry saw it, and he said, I want to watch that. And I was like, nope, 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 not yet, you know. Don't need to show Rambo to him, all right? Bad things will happen. But Rambo was a one-man army, right? I mean, not real, okay? Um, it's amazing to be able to shoot down a helicopter with a bow and arrow. I mean, that's, that's pretty cool. But that's not reality. We can't be Rambos, all right? You may have a significant impact on somebody's life spiritually, But you get the source and strength from that from somewhere else. And it's the Holy Spirit. It's from your time spent alone with God. It's hiding the word of God in your heart. It's being around godly believers to encourage you and strengthen you so that you're able to go out and do that. We have to listen to the Lord. It's his plan. It's his vision. He's our commander. The word Lord, a lot of times slang, we say the word Lord just means boss. Okay? And if he's the boss, he's the one who's setting the rules. He's setting the standards. He's setting the parameters. And we're to follow along under him as obedient soldiers. The third thing, a vision that will not pursue its goals is a pipe dream, meaning that it's a hallucination. It doesn't matter. We have to say, yeah, I have a vision, but I have to pursue that vision. It's one thing to say, yeah, I'm a Christian. Yeah, I believe in God. Yeah, I love Jesus. Yeah, I go to church. But are we pursuing the things of God on a daily basis? That's how things actually get accomplished. It's one thing to say you have faith, James says. It's another to act upon it. Faith without works is what? Dead. So you can say you have all the faith in the world, 
1 Corinthians 13 talks about that. You can say you have all the love in the world, but all the faith in the world, but if you don't have love, you're like a clanging cymbal. You're just making noise. So we have to go after what we say we believe in. We can't just sit still and believe God's favor, believe that he's going to grow the church, believe that he's going to bless us, that these things are just going to magically fall out of heaven into our laps just because we come to church once a week. We have to have action. 1 Peter 5.2. I know you don't have this verse on the screen, but I want to read it to you. Peter says, feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind. Basically what Peter is saying here, and remember, Peter's the one who's denied Jesus. I love that he, he repeats these words because he got the lesson, it tells us. Jesus went to Peter and he said, Peter, do you love me? Peter said, yes, Lord, you know I love you. I mean, he's already humiliated. He's already down. He's about this tall. And Jesus, the one he denied publicly, comes to him. And Jesus doesn't come to humiliate him. Jesus doesn't come to scorn him or to hurt him or to make him feel less. But out of love, Jesus comes because he knows that when we fall short of God's glory, that we need a Savior that will after us and seek us and bring us back, not just leave us where we were. Because guys, we've all been gutless. We've all been guilty. We've all fallen short of God's glory. And thank God that there is one who will seek after us at our lowest points in life and draw us back in love. It's painful. But Jesus sought out Peter and he said, Peter, do you love me? A second time. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said it a third time, Peter, do you love me? I think it's ironic there that Peter had denied Jesus three times and Jesus asks him the question three times and Peter says of course Lord I love you and he's hurt and Jesus said then feed my sheep feed my flock love my people like I love you and guys that's a message to us today maybe somebody has hurt you maybe somebody has cut you with their words maybe somebody stabbed you in the back maybe somebody has just abandoned you and you're angry and you're upset And maybe it's up to us to go and show the love of Jesus like Jesus has shown to each one of us and Jesus showed to Peter. He says, you're not going out to watch over people by constraint because you have to. He says, I want you to do it willingly because you love to do it. And he says, you're not doing it for filthy lucre. It's not about what you get out of it. It's what you give out of it. Paul preaches in the book of Acts chapter 20, and I promise we're getting to the scripture here in Acts 1. But he says, take heed. Therefore, unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost has made you overseers to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. This isn't a a, a verse written about Johnny Ford, all right? Johnny and Mary are feeding us on Wednesday nights, delicious, wonderful food. Um, But it's not talking about spiritual nourishment. It's saying that each one of us, as members of the body, are called to nourish and feed those around us. As a husband... You should be nourishing and feeding your wife, your children. As a mother, as a wife, as a lady, you should be nourishing and feeding your family. As a principal, as a boss, you should be nourishing and feeding your employees. Uh, As a teacher, you should be nourishing and feeding your students. And, And so on it goes. All of us have this call to feed those who are under us. Because if we remember, they don't belong to us, they belong to him. And we're just overseers in the grand scheme of things. If we don't do, or if we don't do what we should, how can we expect to have much of a church? 
if we don't follow God and seek God? How can we expect him to bless us? If we aren't willing to repent of our sins, how can we expect God to make us healthy and whole? God blesses the churches that follow his vision. And he will let churches die that don't. Again, where there's no vision, the people perish. I couldn't think of any part of these vision sermons uh, to speak to your heart that would take precedence over the vision of passionate prayer. And that's what I'm talking about this morning. Prayer is the single most important thing in obtaining the favor of God on our church. The single most important thing, hear that, isn't our singing and it isn't really our preaching. It's the praying. God said, my house shall be called a house of what? Prayer first. Guys, we must be in prayer. Prayer is the match that lights the stick of dynamite of church growth. Prayer is not just a good option for building a dynamic church. Prayer is the only option that we have for seeing the mighty move of God's hand upon us. A church without a strong prayer base is a church without a future. Guys, we have been alive as a church for 151 years. We want to go further into the kingdom until Jesus returns. To do that, we must continue to be a strong praying church. And so we take seriously the reality this morning of a couple of symptoms. How do you contract the passion for prayer? How do you know that we really have, that you really have a passion for prayer? I mean, we're, everybody's sick this time of year. Everybody is. Uh, I mean, we, we contract sickness. We contract flu. We get all kinds of sickness. And we do it by being in proximity with other people who are sick. I mean, people who are contagious spread their communicable sickness to us, and we catch it. The idea here is that we would be not sick but the cure, the health, the antidote to sickness with the gospel, with the love of Jesus in us, and that we would communicate and be communicable to other people so that they would be infected with it as well. I wonder how many of us are. The way, here's, there's two symptoms, and I'll tell you this morning. One is increasing your participation in prayer. That's simple. Do more praying. And here's where we are. Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. You want to know what's just happened. The upper room prayer meetings just happened. Jesus has just ascended into heaven. And the disciples, along with some others, returned, as he said, to Jerusalem. Look at verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. That's about a half mile by the way. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. That's not Judas Iscariot. 11 apostles that are left. All these with one accord. I love this. This is unity and prayer. All of these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his stepbrothers, his brothers. You know, there's at least 20 people that are mentioned, and the next verse says that that group would grow to 120 people if you kept reading there in Acts chapter 1. 
A, pra- a passion for prayer, how we know we have it, how we know we've contracted it, how we know we're infected with it, that we're filled with it. It means, first of all, that we have an increased desire that we're participating in prayer more often, and especially amongst us as believers. In Acts 1, Jesus has ascended. He's back with the Father. He's told his disciples to go and to wait upon him. They go to Jerusalem until they're filled with power for their mission. They didn't go on ahead of Jesus. They waited on Jesus, and that's important for us, church. Wait for him. When he says to go and to wait, we go and we wait. And in the meantime, even if we haven't had an answer until then, we keep praying because it's coming. We believe it's coming. It says in verse 1, these all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication, all of them. That same word is repeated in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayers. You want to know what the church, the early church, the first church consisted of? It's this right here. They continued steadfastly. That means they, they made it their constant mission, their goal, their vision to study doctrine, to fellowship together, to break bread, and to pray together. It's not a hard thing, but it's hard for us. This word Continued steadfastly just means to be persistent, to be engaged constantly, to be diligent about something. If ever there was a word that described what was going on in the first century church, but is not going on in the 21st century church, it's this word, steadfast prayer. Guys, church in large part, listen, I pastor this church, I love this church. I bleed, I lose sleep, I pray for, I I do all that I I believe that I can. I love this church passionately. I want you, not these buildings, you, the church, to be healthy, to be growing in your relationship with Jesus, to be discipling other people, to be evangelizing and sharing Jesus with others, to understand what true worship is, not just to sing a song, but to let your heart rejoice before the Lord. Because that's what we're going to do one day for all eternity. But a lot of times, church has become culturally relevant that we go to blend in. We go because uh, you don't have to commit to anything. Uh, It's easy to find a church where you can kind of skirt in the back door and just sit there. And, And you worship and you hear a good word and you're motivated and encouraged, but you don't do anything else with your faith. It's easy to be distracted by the show that's put on and the performance and you come sometimes to be entertained and it's easy to do those things. But church is more than just about what you can get out of it. Church is what you give. You are the church and you're giving yourself like Jesus gave himself for her. It's a sacrificial love. It's not, a, it's not this exorbitant, I want, feed me, fill me, give me, do for me. It's opposite of that in every way it's the first shall be last we get behind everyone and we push others towards the goal and so we have to if we want change in our church we have to be the change we have to be the ones that are praying asking God seeking from God Jesus proves this point there on the Mount of Olives he'd given the instructions to wait upon him amazingly in Acts 1 all 11 plus the women plus his mother, plus his four half-brothers. The crazy thing is that this group went from 20 to 120 somehow. That's church growth. They stuck with it. 
The result was growth. They were steadfast, and God brought the increase. Jesus has told every Christian in this church and all over the world to tithe. But do we stick with it? Not you, me too. Do we stick with it? Jesus has told every Christian in this church and all the world to go witness to other people. But do we stick with it? Jesus has told every Christian in this church and all over the world to ceaselessly pray. But do we stick with it? We lack sometimes a passion for prayer that was so strong in the early church. And we want what happened on Pentecost, but we don't want to put into what they gave so that Pentecost would happen. There's a difference. We have to invest in order to receive. There is exponential growth to come, and it begins with prayer, steadfast, continual prayer, and not just alone. Yes, do your individual private prayer, but corporately as well. I want us to be a church that lives, I know this sounds corny, but lives prayer and eats prayer, sleeps prayer, breathes prayer, tastes prayer, wakes up praying, pray while we're at work, pray while we're driving with your eyes open. Um, You know, my brother-in-law stood up here last week and preached. I think we recorded his message. It was 50 minutes long. And if he didn't talk so fast, it would have been an hour and 40 minutes long. But I'll tell you this about Sonny Dill. Uh, He is, he's a part-time sheriff's deputy. And I know this, that when somebody's in the back of his uh, squad car, he is telling them about Jesus. And yeah, they're a captive audience. And he, he laughed about that. But how many of us would even think about witnessing to a criminal? And we think, man, I'm not even going to waste my breath. They're not going to listen. Or a person that maybe is uh, said that they hate the church or they hate God. How many people amongst us would go and tell Jesus about those people? But man, somebody told us and we didn't believe. The only thing that separates us from a lost person is the grace of Jesus Christ. And we have to remember in our hearts that love shares that grace and that mercy. Prayer was the first thing on the list of priorities for the early church. And I think it should be the first on ours today. I don't know if you guys know the name Leonard Ravenhill. Amazing preacher, revivalist, evangelist. Leonard Ravenhill, in his book, he wrote a book called Why Revival Tarries. He said this, No man is greater than his prayer life. Poverty stricken as the church is today in many things, she is most stricken here in the place of prayer. We have many organizers, but few agonizers. Many players, And payers, but few prayers. The ministry of preaching is open to few, but the ministry of prayer, the highest ministry of all human offices, is open to all. Peter Marshall was the chaplain for the U.S. Senate for 47 years. And on the floor of that government office one day, this is the prayer that he prayed. Lord, forgive us for thinking that prayer is a waste of time. And help us to see that without prayer... All of our work is a waste of time. Guys, you could spend hours a day praying and you would never waste a moment of that because that prayer has a ripple effect that God is using to change the world. Don't ever think that your praying is a waste of time. 
Why is this, guys? Because we're in a spiritual battle amongst evil forces that are around us. I shudder to think if we had heaven's eyes and kingdom's eyes to open our eyes and see that there is this demonic and angelic force around us at all times. If we saw a glimpse even into hell for a moment, guys, we would be changed forever and become like Paul, just this servant of the gospel and giving everything away to it. We're in a battle of spiritual forces. And I pray that we don't let down our brothers and sisters. It would be a horrible thing if I were sitting in a machine gun turret and I knew my, my people were advancing across the line and that gun remained silent. I didn't fire it. I didn't shoot it to protect them. I didn't lay down cover fire. I didn't do anything good to help protect them. I just let them run and they get mowed down. That's on me. But a lot of times, and we have this weapon that's way more powerful and impactful, and it's prayer. And we're not praying for people that are going out on the front lines. We're not praying for our sick. We're not praying for our ministers. We're not praying for our music leaders. We're not praying for our elderly. We're not praying for our youth. We're not praying for our children. We're not praying for our Sunday school teachers. We're just not praying. And it's a lot like letting people go out and just get beat up because they got let down by us for not being the prayer warrior that we were called to be. 1 Samuel 12, 23 is the alarm call to the church today. The prophet Samuel said, God forbid that I should get sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you. God forbid that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you. The second thing is just this, and I want to cover it really quickly, but it's in Acts chapter 4. Snicker, snicker. Look at verse 29. I think we could just read this passage and not even have to speak on it. Acts 4.29. Now, Lord, look on their threats. <laughs> He's talking about Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles. Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Now, with the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. That's important. Again, the unity of the spirit. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own. But they had all things in common. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. <clears throat> the second symptom... The first one is we increase or elevate our prayer game. The second one is this. When we increase our prayer game, we experience an increase in power from the Holy Spirit in our lives. If you want to know the background for this, and this is important. Peter and John had healed a lame man at the front gate of the temple. And Peter had preached that the people, he said, you... All killed the Son of God, the Prince of Peace, the Messiah. People were absolutely outraged. He said, but that same Jesus has arisen from the grave 
And all men need to repent of their sins. What a bold thing to say. And it's a good message, but the Sadducees didn't like it. And they had Peter and John arrested. Peter and John are finally released from prison after they're threatened. The the people said, listen, if we don't release them, uh, the crowd's going to go crazy. We better do something, protect ourselves, because they'll revolt against us. They released Peter and John from prison. And the first thing Peter and John did is they joined a prayer meeting. It's pretty bold. Bold move, Cotton. They go over there to where the brothers and sisters are gathered, and they start praying with them. And it wasn't some weak, timid prayer. I'm sure that they gave thanks for God to God for their release. But it's a pretty good place to go when you've met up with the devil, to go join with others in prayer. Acts 4.24 says they lifted up their voice with one accord. They increased their prayer game. Verse 29 and 30 says... Uh, They prayed for boldness to preach and for signs and wonders of God's power to be shown. And the result is found in verse 31. When they had prayed, they had to do that first, the place was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. And they spoke the word of God with boldness. Man, we need to be shaken today, guys. We need the power of God to hit, to drop on us. It will if we're praying the way we should. There's no reason why God cannot act upon our behalf as he did for the first century church. God is not dead. He ever liveth to make intercession for us. God has not changed. He's the same yesterday and today and forever. God has not all of a sudden taken a selfish streak. He's not fallen asleep on his throne. But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus our Lord. He's the God who gives richly for us to enjoy all things. He healed person after person in the first century. Maybe the reason why some of these things don't happen is because we're not given to do what they were doing 2,000 years ago. God laid down miracles. He's still doing miracles on a daily basis. He walked on water, raised the dead, cast out demons, gave sight to the blind, threw off the chains of Peter in prison, and even gave him an angelic escort right out the prison doors. Why doesn't that happen today? Maybe because we're not given to prayer like they were 2,000 years ago. If we'll get back to praying God will get back to giving us the power we need. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said this. The one concern, get this, the one concern of the devil. What's he after? Well, Jesus said he's coming to steal, to kill, and to destroy, right? He wants that from you. The one concern of the devil is to keep Christians from praying. He fears nothing from prayerless studies, from prayerless work, and prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil and mocks at our wisdom, but he trembles when we pray. My goodness. You know, I I know this sounds funny, but what if when you woke up in the morning and you sat over on the side of your bed and you began praying, Satan and the demons were trembling because they knew that a prayer warrior of God had awakened and was fixing to step foot on the earth it can happen I don't think I could teach you or tell you about prayer without this last guy George Mueller Uh, if you've never done a study on George Mueller you can spell his name M-U-L-L-E-R or M-U-E-L-L-E-R George Mueller he's worth reading about read a a biography of his George Mueller um, wasn't afraid of the devil or of praying. One day, George Mueller, as a younger man, walked along the streets of Bristol, England, where he was from. He saw hundreds of orphaned, homeless, hungry children playing on the street, and he reached in his pocket, 
And he pulled out two shillings, which amounts to about 50 cents. And he thought, how can I help? I got 50 cents. And it didn't stop him, okay? The need, the conviction that he saw to help somebody was greater than what he had in his pocket. And so what he did is he began praying. And he says, God, I don't have anything to give. But I want to build you an orphanage for these children. We know that he prayed this because he kept a diary by the end of his life that was over 3,000 pages long of what God did by prayer alone. One day, I love this story, there was no food in the pantry. There were already a couple of hundred kids in the Mueller Orphanage home. And so he said, I'm going to pray all night long. So he gets down. He forsakes sleep. Sometimes you have to sacrifice to get the things that you need and want. He says, I'm not going to sleep. I'm just going to lay here and I'm going to pray. And at 3 o'clock in the morning, a baker rang the orphanage. The baker said, I can't sleep tonight. I must go down to the bakery to bake bread. Would it be all right if I brought a load of fresh bread to the orphanage? Amazing. God did that. It's not odd. It's God. Another day, a milk truck broke down right in front of the orphanage. And despite all the efforts of the mechanics, they couldn't get the truck running again for hours. The delivery man ran to the front door of the orphanage. He found Mueller on his knees praying and asked him, Sir, the milk of my truck is going to spoil. Would you be able to use this for your kids? With 50 cents in his pocket, George Mueller took care of over 10,000 orphans in Bristol, England for 60 years. One person can do a great deal. You're always the majority with God. There is nothing that you can't do. All things are possible with Christ. When he empowers you, guys, we can do anything. One of Mueller's policies was that never in his organization would they ever ask for funds from anyone. And yet, through the answer to prayer over the course of those 60 years, Benefactors gave over $7 million to help Mueller with his God-sized task. How did he do it? He kept a journal, a diary of prayer that was 3,000 pages long. And in those 3,000 pages, there were over 30,000 answered prayers that he recorded. He would pray it, he would write it down, and he would wait for God to answer. And he'd write the answer into his book. You can read it. He's got an autobiography. You can get copies of his diary. I wonder if we're prepared to pray like that for the power of God to fall on our lives and our families and our church. We won't unless we have a passion and a vision for prayer. How can we start? What can we do? Where can we begin? This isn't to browbeat you if you're not a praying person. It's to encourage you that anything is possible if we will begin praying. You do the praying and God will provide the power. And if First Baptist Church Lowell is ever to amount to anything great, and I believe we already have, but greater is in store. If we're ever to amount to anything greater for God, it will be because we've had a vision to be passionate in prayer. And so I want to pray right now. Our musicians are coming, and I'd ask you to bow your heads and maybe close your eyes. I don't know your posture of prayer. Some people stand. Some people sit. Some people bow their heads. Some people clasp their hands. Some people lay prostrate on the, on the ground, face down. Some people get on their knees. Some people come to the altar. Some sit in their pew. Some have a literal prayer closet at home. Some use their bed. Some use their car. Some use their office or their classroom. The place and the posture is not near as important as the act. And church, I'll tell you this as we begin to pray. God best uses prayer to not only shape us, 
but to glorify himself. You want to glorify God, you go to him in communication. He uses prayer to bless other people. Maybe it's your family. Maybe you're interceding for a Sally Martin or a Ben Rao or someone else. Well, how are those prayers going to be heard and answered if they've never been prayed? James says, we have not because we ask not. Church, are you willing to ask in faith? And if you don't hear the answer at first, are you willing to keep asking and be steadfast in prayer? Don't give up. Church, God doesn't use the dirtiest of vessels to do the most sacred things either. If there's sin in your life, begin today by confessing that sin. He already knows it. He's waiting for you to confess it and ask for forgiveness of it. Sin can hinder prayers from being answered. So confess your sin, church. You need help in your marriage? If your spouse is here, grab their hand. Commit to praying with them. You need help raising your kids? Explain to them what you're going to do. You need help with aging parents? Start praying for them. You need help with a coworker that's difficult to deal with each day and you're already dreading going into the office tomorrow? Why don't you start praying for them and praying that God would give you a heart to overcome your hardness too. Do we want this church to grow, to prosper, to be successful? Do we want God to bless us and encourage our hearts? Do we want him to use us to grow the kingdom? Man, we begin in prayer. Oh, Lord, hear us today. Not all of our prayers are out loud like mine is at this moment, but there are a lot of people praying. God, we are supremely confident in your ability to answer prayer. Search us and know us, God. If there is hidden sin in our heart, may we confess it. May you forgive it, Lord. Where we are weak and powerless, may you instill us with the Holy Spirit's power. Where we're afraid, make us bold. Help us to not be afraid. Lord, where we're lax and comfortable, would you shake us up and get us back to the place we need to be? Because, Lord, we're not going to worship you the right way if we're not praying first. We're not going to win souls to you if we're not praying for them first. We're certainly not going to disciple and grow young people and older people and people all over the world if we're not going to pray about it. This church will never be healthy if we won't pray about it. Our marriages, our careers, our health, it all hinges on prayer. So Lord, convict us today to make this new year something, if we're going to make a resolution, that we would commit to prayer above all things. And draw your people to it, Lord. Work in our hearts right now. Move us, God. We ask this in Jesus' name.